0: Slack is a messaging platform for organizations. Since its creation in 2013, Slack has quickly become a core piece of technology used by a wide variety of technology companies, groups, and small teams. The messages that are sent on Slack are generated at a very high volume, and they're extremely sensitive. These messages must be stored on Slack's servers in a way that does not risk a message from one company accidentally being made accessible to another company. The messages must be highly available, and they also must be indexed for search. When Slack was scaling, the company started to encounter limitations in its data infrastructure that the company was unsure how to solve. During this time, Josh Wills was the director of data engineering at Slack, and he joins the show to retell the history of his time at Slack, and why the problem of searching messages was so hard. Josh also provides a great deal of industry context around how engineers from Facebook and Google differ from one another. When Slack was starting to become popular, the company quickly began to attract engineers from both of these gigantic companies, both Facebook and Google. And Facebook and Google have distinct solutions and distinct perspectives for how they have tackled the problems of data engineering. We are hiring a software engineer who can work across both mobile and web applications. This role will include work on SoftwareDaily.com, our iOS app, and our Android application. We're looking for someone who learns very quickly and can produce high-quality code at a fast pace. We're looking to move beyond the world of just being a software podcast into more of a platform of information about software. If you're interested in working with us, send an email to jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We're looking for somebody who is hungry and wants to learn quickly and wants to build lots of software. If you are that person and you're hungry, it doesn't matter what your experience level is as long as you have built and shipped meaningful applications. Send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Josh Wills, welcome to
1: Software Engineering Daily. Jeff, thank you so much for having me.
0: The data infrastructure at a given company, it usually starts with a transactional database. You have a Mongo database, you have a MySQL database. I hope you don't have a
1: Mongo database, but otherwise, yep, gotcha. <laughs> I have, I'm have. i unemployed, I'm going to throw all kinds of shade during right. this, during this well, podcast. All yeah. right,
0: we're, we're, we're getting people normalized, unlike a Mongo database. Oh, <laughs> So... The transactional database at the startup, you know, you got a couple people, so you only have, like, one database, and it's just storing all the messages or storing all the comments or storing all the ride-sharing activity, all these different things. Orders,
1: sure. Yeah,
0: orders. Company starts to take off. Yep. You start to have tons and tons of these transactional data transactions happen, and the database gets really big. That's not a problem. We know how to scale those things. Eventually, you get to a point where you want analytics as well. You want perhaps a data warehousing system, you want perhaps some sort of data lake, you want these ETL or ELT systems. Could you contrast the type of operations that take place in that company that is the purely transactional company versus a company that has advanced enough to need these kinds of analytics or OLAP systems?
1: Yeah, okay. I think... From my point of view, it fundamentally comes down to a hiring thing. So let's take, for example, Slack, where I used to work. When I got to Slack in 2015, Slack had been obviously growing like a weed for a couple of years at that point, and not all of the analytics, but like the vast majority of the analytics were still run against like a replica copy of the transactional data system we had. I had like a job queue infrastructure that we had built. And, and by we, I mean the people who were there before me, since obviously I wasn't there at that point, that Slack had built for doing asynchronous operations. And obviously ETL can be thought of as an asynchronous operation. So yeah, when the first kind of set of analysts got there and they were dedicated to, you know, Answering business questions essentially full time as their job, their only real option to do that was to like spin up their own little database that had a cache copy of the results of ETL calculations that were run against like replicas of the transactional database, and that was the system. I think for companies that are in this situation that are like thinking about making this transition for along this sort of this chicken and the egg problem, right? Essentially, should you hire an analyst first, or should you hire like a data engineer first? Slack, I think like a lot of companies sort of default towards hiring the analyst first and and the analyst gets there and kind of has to work with what exists. And then eventually you manage to hire data engineers and the data engineers start doing the work to spin up, obviously like the data warehousing systems and the ETL or sort of the, like whatever, the extraction process, the replication process, whatever, whatever for moving data out of transactional systems, restructuring it in a way that's optimized for analysts. And basically doing the things that makes the analyst's life much better and fundamentally allows you to scale out your analytics team where it's not the case that every analyst must have an in-depth you know knowledge of the transactional system and has to be really really good and really really careful not to say accidentally drop a production table or you know which happens So, yeah, it really, for me, it's really kind of this hiring thing. Like if you've reached a point in your growth, in the success of your company, whatever, whatever, where it makes sense to have like a full time analyst, that's kind of how you get things going. And if you grow further and are more successful and need to scale that up, building out that kind of that analytics infrastructure, that, and that analytics, I cringe a little bit as I say it, uh, value chain requires like these additional these additional people or or honestly, like these days, more and more just like you know between segments and Fivetran, and i don't want to leave anyone off the list but there's like a ton of these different companies yeah. right that are really providing a lot of the very like basic common data engineering functionality as a service you can really actually get a long way without even having to hire anyone you can hire these companies to do it for you
0: wait the company does it don't you need some person at the company who's going to stitch like you need a slack person at slack who's going to stitch together all these different solutions
1: definitely i i suppose what i mean is you don't need a specialist per se like you can have a reasonably qualified just generalist software engineer who knows how to like stand up APIs and stuff like that and have them provision and, and run these systems to do most of the work. Like you don't need necessarily like dedicated people. And in particular, you don't necessarily need like a specialist per se, someone who specializes or a whole team of people who specialize in this sort of data infrastructure, data analytics pipeline. It's 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 one of those tricky things. There's a great Joel Sposky has this this great essay, he has a lot of great essays, but the one I I always go back to is The Law of Leaky Abstractions. It's this essay about how we've created these layers and layers of abstractions on top of all the different things we've built. And even as the abstractions like save you time, they don't necessarily like save you the cost of understanding the kind of intricacies and, and the aspects that like the abstractions are abstracting over, if that makes sense. Like I find that eventually, I'm trying to give a good example. Let's say uh, gar- garbage collection is an abstraction that everyone is familiar with, right? We use garbage collection so we don't have to manually manage memory because that's obviously stupid and a waste of time. You can use garbage collection without having to understand garbage collection. But if you run a system for long enough and it gets kind of interesting, you will inevitably run into a situation where say your garbage collector is like pausing the world and your whole system just seizes up for a couple of seconds. And at that point to figure out like what's wrong and diagnose it and and remedy it, you are kind of forced to understand like the intricacies of the garbage collector and like what exactly it is doing at some level. So the garbage collection like saved you all this time Until, But like the check comes due, (laughs) like a later date in a lot of ways. I think what's hard for folks getting up, like spinning up data infrastructure to support analytics, data science, machine learning, whatever, whatever, is you're sort of immediately confronted with like the fact that you don't really know what's what. You don't like know all the things. You don't know all the pieces you need to know. And so you're kind of immediately, even as you like, can use these tools to save yourself a ton of time. It doesn't save you the cost of like knowing what to do, if if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Slack specifically, when you joined, was there analytics? Was there OLAP? Was there an offline nightly Hadoop job running? Give me the state, because we all know how Slack transactional processing works. We all know like, or I've done some shows on that, but the root of it is like, you know, you have a, a message that gets sent to people and then the message gets shared with the people who are on the channel and data gets written into some kind of scalable database and you got all kinds of transactional issues there. That's really interesting. And then as far as the OLAP infrastructure, the things that I can immediately recognize are that building a search index over all this text is non-trivial and that almost sounds like a, an online analytics processing kind of job not really an offline because if you if you send a message you want it to be indexed very quickly yeah i guess just give me give me your overview of the analytic processing the perhaps offline or or non-transactional processing that existed when you joined slack
1: so i joined slack in october of 2015 a Slack hired their very first data engineer in July of 2015, like a little bit before me. And the person they hired, and I'm, I'm gonna gonna protect his privacy and not mention his name, he's honestly a phenomenal engineer, like one of the best engineers I've ever worked with. And so I'm actually I'm gonna to change my mind. I'm gonna mention his name. It's it's, it's Stan Babarin. He's an absolutely incredible engineer. He had set up almost everything kind of by the time I got there to like nominally manage the team. I had to make a few. I, I made a few different tweaks. We learned things as we went along, but. Broadly speaking, we ran a Netflix-style OLAP data architecture in the sense that everything, all of our data, all of our logs, and our sort of like replicas of, of production, database tables and stuff like that were all stored in S3. We used Parquet as our file format of choice. We ran EMR clusters almost exclusively, and this was like really back in the dark ages of EMR. This was like EMR 3, EMR 4, which was just an absolute nightmare for reasons I can get into later. It's much better now. But it was Hive primarily for ETL and Presto primarily for interactive queries on top of it. And then we ran AirPal, which was a sort of short-lived version of this this thing Airbnb built. that was a clone of a system at Facebook called HiPal for doing kind of query dashboarding, visualization. So like very lightweight, very kind of primitive sort of stuff. But it was fine. It's been obviously, again, replaced by much more sophisticated things at this point. And that was what we ran. And we initially... Started querying over uh, all of our application logs, you know, Apache access logs, all that kind of like the great stuff that, that, that is fairly standard. And then eventually built out systems for doing richer application logging using Thrift as kind of our schema definition format, um, transforming Thrift records into Parquet, and then eventually built an entire system, Stan, I should say, really built an entire system for spinning up basically uh, replicas or, or uh, backups, effectively, of our production MySQL systems and then just dumping them all into S3 every day. And it was a system we called Scooper, It was essentially a very clever orchestration layer around Apache Scoop. Although at this point, I think we actually ripped out Scoop. Scoop ended up being the slowest part of it at some point. But anyway, yeah, that that was kind of the foundation of what we did. Like I said, it was very Netflix style. We treated our Hadoop clusters as these ephemeral things. We didn't really care if they died. We would just spin up a new one, like annoying, but like not the end of the world. We had a homegrown ETL engine that Stan wrote that after... Honestly, one of a really very bloody battle, we eventually replaced with Airflow, Airflow like 173, which I think that's a whole other, like we could do another hour on like the intricacies of Airflow. Airflow to do kind of our, most of our ETL stuff. That was the basis. That was the foundation. We built all this stuff. And I think, you know, I've I've talked about a little before that we sort of ended up building kind of like a ghost city for a while. Like Stan and I were like really just like laser focused on building this stuff up for like, you know, maybe six months or so. And sort of while we were building all this infrastructure, like our the existing analytics team was using the existing analytics infrastructure, which was the you know, ETL jobs running on our production systems using the production job queue and then kind of piping stuff into a cached kind of analytics database. And it was funny, it really took us a while It was not until we started like aggressively hiring analysts, data scientists, engineers from the Googles and Facebooks and Twitters of the world that we actually got the people in who knew how to build, knew how to use the stuff we were building, basically. And so it was very, it was anyway, it was, it was yeah.
0: Can you shed more light on that? Like why, you know, I've seen plenty of conference talks and you know, QCon sessions and podcasts and stuff. Isn't everything there? Don't I know how to build data infrastructure by just, you know, watching the videos and those kinds of things? What can somebody who's worked at Google and Facebook tell me that I don't already know from looking at software architecture diagrams?
1: Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I guess I'm not being clear. The infrastructure Stan and I were building was fundamentally like, it was basically like we're, we're using Facebook stuff, fundamentally. Presto, Thrift, right? Hive. All the things we're talking about here are fundamentally like Facebook based technologies, I was a Google person. I spent four years at Google and I kind of learned how to do things the Google way. And so we ended up building kind of like Google style data infrastructure within the Facebook technical ecosystem, which caused like a number of comical problems. Wait, you gotta
0: tell me more about that.
1: Yeah. It was just really absolutely terrible. How do
0: these things even differ? I thought they were the same thing.
1: They're really not. They're really not, in, in very important and fundamental ways, they're really not. And it, it's, you're right, it's not widely talked about, but for those of us who've lived it, which may, may be me and a few other people, they are quite subtly different in ways that turn out to be incredibly, incredibly important and very painful to remedy. What I mean is, we didn't, no one at Slack knew how to use that stuff. We invested like zero time in training these people. Like, what do we have when we got there? We had the existing analytics infrastructure. We had Logstash, right, the ELK stack. So the engineers used ELK they, and like, like Grafana and whatnot because that was what engineers knew how to use. And the analysts used kind of like their MySQL system that they built themselves and they kind of knew how to use. And it's not until you hire like the Google, Facebook people who come in and are like, okay, we're here. Where's the Presto thing? Where's the Hive thing? where's, where's the Dremel thing? Like, where, where are the tools I know how to use? What are they called? Where are they? That we actually started getting some traction with the system because the people who were like there, they had their tools. They knew how their tools worked. They had problems to solve using the tools they knew how to solve. And they were like, you're basically saying, Hey, look at this entire new elaborate, you know, technical infrastructure that is incredibly powerful. I promise. I swear, but you know, absolutely nothing about Mm -hmm. You don't know how to solve the problems. You know how to solve using these tools. You don't know what, tool, what problems these things can solve, blah, 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 blah. Whereas when you bring in the people who've worked in those worlds and know how those worlds operate, you really just have to tell them, yeah, it's called this, here's the URL, go nuts, <laughs> knock yourself out. That was kind of, that was sort of the thing.
0: Clarify to me what is the difference between the Facebook stack and the Google stack?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So where to begin? So Slack was my first real experience working with like a ton of Facebook people. And I think one of the problems of Google people and Facebook people, at least the people who've only worked at one or the other, is they think that the way that things were done at Google or Facebook is like the way, capital T, capital W. It is the truth. It is the received wisdom. And there are elements of that that are correct because there are things that Facebook does and things that Google does are fundamentally the same or have like at very least the same underlying principles associated with them, but there are lots of other things that they do very differently. And this is true across their entire stacks. And generally speaking, there are consequences to a lot of what are effectively like random choices. I will give you an example. This is my favorite example. At Google, for a very long time, There was one, uh, so Google uses protocol buffers, Facebook uses Thrift, there are minor differences between them, but they're, again, pretty inconsequential, at least in my experience, except when they're not, Never mind. But anyway, they both use, like Facebook uses Thrift for RPCs and for logging, Google uses protocol buffers for RPCs and for logging, and they have for a long time. At Google, there was a a protocol buffer called GWIS Log Entry Proto, GWIS, G-W-S, stands for Google Web Server, it's Google's homegrown web server. GWIS Log Entry Proto and it is this gigantic protocol buffer that contains like absolutely every single logged field for any google service anywhere ever it is this gigantic monstrosity of a thing and turns out to be like fairly useful in a bunch of different contexts to have like one giant log record to rule them all. Cause you can kind of assume that whatever service you're, you're spinning out is gonna have a GWIS log entry proto. You can assume that everyone's gonna have this globally unique identifier associated with it. You can assume that you can kind of glue these things together in kind of neat ways. So a lot of power that comes from this. So when I got to Slack, that was the way you did logging. And so that was what I created at Slack. I created a a thrift record, again, doing the Google style thing in the Facebook infrastructure called The Slog. And a lot of it is just because I am super bad at naming things. And anyone who ever works with me should never allow me to name anything. That is like my one take. What's like, the
0: name of your child?
1: His name's Wesley. His That's name's, not bad. It's not as bad. It's, it's, it's funny. My wife and I, were we didn't know what the sex was going to be. And we were really hoping to have a girl. And this is funny because you will obviously hear this at some point in the future. hear me telling the story. So we had girl names picked out. And we had like kind of like a few nominal like boy names kind of picked out. But like when, when he was born, we realized that like none of the boy names fit and we're gonna call him like Soren or, or Case, but he's just like you met him, and he's just you know he's like he's only one day old, but he just he wasn't a Soren. He <laughs> just wasn't. It's just like this is not this is not who this this is not a Soren. And so, yeah, we had to kind of... It took us four days, actually, <laughs> to come up with his name. Wow. Yeah. Okay, anyway,
0: sorry. Anyway, so, Slog. slog. Really slog. important. I think it's a good name, but let's move on to Slog.
1: Slock, slog. Slog. It, it just got worse. I started doing every... And slog,
0: so this is the single log message to rule them all for yeah, Slack. Yeah,
1: effectively, like the Slack log, the single log. Meaning
0: to... that whenever yeah. the developer says, like, service.log, it just emits this thing that has everything in it?
1: Yeah, basically. Basically, it was just, this was kind of like the container like thrift record for every other logged event and the thing is it's not just for like sort of like Slack's core web service like the, the web application that like the monolith at the core of Slack it's like everything is a slog every service spits out slogs this is, this is like the Google way every okay. every service including services at Google that are not GWIS mm. with a, a handful of exceptions spit out a GWIS log entry proto every service at Slack spits out a slog more or less again few exceptions but generally speaking that's the way it works That is not the way they do logging at Facebook. Facebook uses, I think, a much simpler system many ways is is vastly better, to be honest with you, which is kind of like... So I I eventually created a Facebook-style log at Slack that, again, this is sort of more evidence for the I am bad at naming things argument or proposition or whatever, called the clog. Yeah, I know. So you're sort of like... You guys can't see it, but Jeff is like literally throwing up into a wastebasket right now. The clog... And the sort of the core of Facebook logging is like, every service has its own logging, it's like utter lawlessness, but generally speaking, every service has like, every log event has an event ID, which tells you some idea of like, what is this thing? What is this event? The idea of like, why did Google build this sort of uber crazy not so log? Um, It was because they wanted to kick out one log at the end of every single request, if that makes sense. Whereas Facebook was running, and it was because Google was like compiling stuff, it was all C++. It wasn't really a big deal to have like state around that you could kind of persist across different requests and so on and so forth. So that was how they did things. When Facebook did logging, they did lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of events, logged events per request. So like as the request goes along, they would just fire off like an RPC call or an HTTP call to a local Scribe server containing whatever information they wanted to log right now. So instead of having like one gigantic source of truth for the entire request, Facebook would have like lots and lots of little tiny ones. There are lots of downstream consequences to this decision. Mm-hmm. And the choice was honestly, in my opinion, just a function of the fact that Google was born at a time when like Kafka didn't exist. So like Google was using like, essentially like a log rotate based logging system for their application servers for a long, long time. It was the world's best log rotate system, but it was just log rotate. Whereas PHP, stateless, all this kind of other sort of consequences of the way PHP works, every PHP request starts like de novo, nothing. There's no state, there's nothing, right? And there's actually some really great consequences to this. But anyway, so they opted for like lots and lots and lots of tiny events over the course of the requests. And this fairly like arbitrarily seemingly inconsequential decision has just tremendous downstream impact on like every other thing you do and how you build infrastructure and so on and so forth. There was also a significant element of like the business they were in, sort of driving the way they thought about data modeling. Google does search. And search, there is not like a database. Generally speaking, there's no relational database. There's just a search index. And so at Google, like the log is the source of truth and the logs are almost always highly, highly, highly denormalized in the MongoDB sense of the term, where there's like an entry, like a repeated array of complex records, which have information on every search result and so on and so forth. Whereas Facebook... Again, with these lots and lots of small, very simple events that are just basically like simple key value pairs. And then their existing relational infrastructure, since Facebook is obviously like a very big and elaborate MySQL system, relational tabular thinking and relational tabular data processing was really fundamental to the way they worked. So Google was kind of born in a non-relational world and developed non-relational data infrastructure tools, most famously MapReduce. Facebook came along with like a you know, very relational oriented system. And in fact, their original, you know, like data warehouse was essentially like Oracle and stuff like that. Hive came along later. So it was this kind of interesting situation where Google is born kind of non-relationally invents all of this very clever, brilliant, non-relational infrastructure, comes along later and slaps some SQL on top of it via Dremel and Tenzing and other systems they built. Facebook has this kind of relational system. Grows and grows and grows to the point where they realize they need like the Hadoopish kind of clone of Google's Google stuff, and then creates like a SQL layer on top of it, which ends up becoming Hive to kind of keep their their data model and their way of working consistent across their entire environment. I think the decision at Google to create like gists log entry proto and do it the way it did was probably something that like an intern. You know, named like Kevin or Susan or whatever, created like one day in 2000, thinking nothing of it, that had this just enormous downstream ripple of consequences. (laughs) And the thing to remember is, from my perspective, showing up at Google in 2007, 2008, I can't tell because all of this stuff has grown up around it. Right? There are all of these sort of subsequent decisions that are coming, and I didn't see it happen, so I don't know. I don't know the history. I don't know this stuff. So to me, it's all just truth. It's all just receive wisdom. This is how we, we
0: episode the history yeah, of quiz log entry.
1: I would be happy to. Again, I am unemployed, have nothing else to do. And I, I love clearly talking about this stuff in a way that I, I think I maybe had forgotten over the last couple of months. Well, We need to
0: find Kevin or Susan or whoever it was. I who, would love who, to. Who did that. I'm
1: sure they're in witness protection at this point. <laughs> Eventually, the funny thing about quiz a couple of years ago, Google actually like finally hit the scaling limit. Of Gwislog log entry proto, where there was so much, there's too many fields. Yeah, and kind of like you know, in the Android sense, where like Android has this limit where you can only have like sixty four thousand functions or something like that in a binary. There's some weird limit around this. Oh, wow. Same thing happened with the Java compiled version of the Gwislog log entry proto, where it like <laughs> exceeded the capability of like the of the Java compiler. <laughs> this kind of stuff happens at Google all the time. They they handled it, but it was just kind of like. The bill came due. It just it just came due. Like in after fifteen You're years. Be sick, man. I'm sorry. It's just this is I don't know. This is the nature of the terrible industry that we've chosen to work in. This is just like what we do to ourselves. Human beings, man. Right. Damnedest thing. So we've gone very deep on this. I know. I don't know esoteric
0: why. But esoteric <laughs> subject of how Google data infrastructure and Facebook data infrastructure differ from one another through the lens of the differences in how the logging infrastructure developed or the log message infrastructure. And I understand there were downstream ramifications, and so you have a, a divergence in in the system design there. And then at Slack, you're post-Google, you're post-Facebook um, timeline-wise, and you've got engineers from both of these places coming in, and they're discussing how should things look here at Slack. I mean, if you've got these two past systems where things were one way in the Google world, things were another way in the Facebook world, how was a resolution reached as to how things should be done at Slack?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. The honest answer is that when I got there, I made essentially all of the decisions about how things should be done at Slack. And I mean a number of them and I was coming like largely from a position of, again, this, this sort of myopia, right? Of not understanding the evolution of these systems and not under really like not understanding of the decisions I was making, which of them were based on principles, and which of them were just sort of like path-dependent consequences of random decisions that were made earlier in time, if that makes sense. So when the Facebook people got there, they were mostly like angry and confused <laughs> about like why. I was doing things or why I had decided to do things the way I had done and not being like the world's most mature or enlightened person either today and certainly not four years ago, I was not, I would say I was not overly sympathetic to their concerns, broadly speaking. I would say like, well, you know, that's Facebook. It's great. Y'all are obviously very successful. You've done well, but you know, I'm from Google. This is how things are done. Just, just trust me. Didn't go, went over about as well as you would expect it to, like all that kind of stuff. So my my education was hard and difficult, but I would say very well learned at this point. Anyway, for some things, I would say when the a lot of like sort of the choices or the way things were done were generally like a function of the first mover. There was too much to do. There was a million things to do. There was so, there was no shortage of things to do. Like everything needed to be done. We were doing things as fast as we could. And we were just trying to keep the lights on the vast majority of the time, just keep the data flowing, keep the pipes running, that kind of thing. So generally speaking, if like a Facebook person came along and said, hey, there was this thing that was really useful at Facebook. I think we should build it here. I was like, great. Go for it. Knock yourself out. Just don't talk to me for the rest of the week. And and that'll be fantastic. Which is, again, as the director of data engineering, was not like the right response. But neither here nor there. And a lot of those things were just like, phenomenally great and incredibly powerful and and taught me a lot and I think very much taught me, oh wait, it's possible that some of these Facebook people kind of like maybe know what they were doing and had like some pretty good ideas about how stuff should work. It's a lot easier, I don't know if it's better, but it's certainly a lot easier Go without saying that I would do a lot of things differently had I had to do over again. So many things differently. Yeah. The irony, of course, is that in doing these things differently, no one would appreciate what I had done because they hadn't had the experience of not having it, if that makes sense. The terrible analogy I like to use is no one appreciates the person who on September 10th, 2001, mandated that every single like airplane cockpit door had to have a lock on it. Right. Like we don't we don't appreciate these decisions. Right you can't really appreciate all of the pain that something saves you the vast majority of the time, right? Right. Right. right, That kind of stuff. You just take these things for granted. This is just like the way it works. And of course it works that way. And that's fine. I, my joke, I think my tweet was something like when you, when you're an early technical person and this is just, you know, vastly more true, I think for like CTOs and the very early, early technical employees at Slack and other places is you make an enormous number of decisions. And the vast majority of them were correct and good. And if you hadn't, then, you know, guess what? You wouldn't be in business anymore, right? But those good decisions are like invisible. (laughs) No one can see them, they're taken for granted. And of course, because you're a person and you're imperfect and you can't see the future, you make a small number of like bad decisions. Some of them are like really, really bad. And those bad decisions cause pain and suffering for everyone forever and everyone like kvetches about them and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's your reward, congratulations. Hopefully you get a bunch of money to go with it. I guess when your company goes public, but that's that's the deal.
0: It almost seems like the decisions didn't matter that much. Like, some of them do, some of them don't. Some of them do,
1: some of them don't. Yeah,
0: but you can just com- you can always compensate for them, right? Like you always just figure out some architectural way to yeah. compensate for them, and that sometimes that architectural way of compensating for them ends up being a strength of of the company later on and
1: but you can always compensate for any almost any bad decision with sufficient money like broadly speaking I mean I think you know Airbnb is, is I think in many ways like a phenomenal case study I mean they essentially just like literally airlifted an entire Facebook data team over to their company around 2014 and the team came in and, I mean, you should get like, I, mean, I actually recommend some Airbnb people to have on the show. Sure, it's yeah. a fascinating, it's like one of my favorite stories. That was great and that they just like, cause they were just, they, I mean, they were like, it was a disaster, like it was an absolute right. disaster. It was well, just, anyway. Hey
0: man, you get a bunch of designers building a company, you get the worst and the best of that. I mean,
1: I think there's a lot of truth to that and that's just the way it goes, right? The Facebook people came in and they rebuilt like the Facebook data style and like I said, that solves a lot of problems. There's none of this nonsense conflict about like, should we do like sort of these ridiculous, you know, like do we eat our eggs with the, you know, the top, what of the Gulliver's travel thing? Like, do we eat our eggs with the top or the, the thin end or the thick end, whatever, like there's I, I, kind of religious I was, wars. I was, I was right? with
0: your analogies until then.
1: Until then. You, you lost there's me. There's one it. of these in Gulliver's travels, there's this like John Swift is parroting this idea of like, there is some kind of religious war between two groups of people, one of whom eat their eggs, like, you know, crack their eggs on the small end. Uh-huh. And, and like, and some of them do it on the, the, the bottom end, the oh, bottom okay. of the top. And this is uh-huh. like a battle. This is a lot of like- For a like soft the, boiled egg. Yeah, yeah. for a soft boiled egg. This is a lot of like the religious wars we have around technology choices are fundamentally mm-hmm. like this. They're kind of like stupid. And so skipping all of that, awesome. Saves you a lot of time. That's That's great. A lot of time, a lot of heartache. One of the things they didn't do- and caused them an enormous amount of pain, was they used JSON logging for years. And they did not replace the JSON logging until, I think, a couple of years ago, is my understanding, they finally moved over to Thrift. And that's problematic
0: because it's just, it's going to be slower, it's going to have more parsing and deparse or the whatever, transcoders or whatever. From- Sadly, this
1: is like a whole other hour-long topic okay, I can give right, you on the problems. Right. We'll just, do, but it. let me, let me I'll, I'll do it briefly. The human cost is the problem. The human cost is the problem. JSON enforces essentially no consistency. You can name things whatever you want. You can use camel case. You can use underscores. You can t- miss, do typos. You can do all these kind of things. And so your application logs, which are obviously very useful for lots of things, have essentially no structure and no reference for like what the is in them. So to compensate for this, you hire, and Facebook did this too for a long time, armies of data engineers who effectively become the schema. They become the schema. They are, they, they like you can either have like a thrift record and impose a small cost on everyone. Whenever they want to log something, they have to update this stupid thrift record, right? This th- stupid thrift schema to say what they're going to log. Or you can have utter lawlessness and have like a data engineering team that needs to scale with the rest of your application engineering team to deal with all of the vagaries and subtleties of all the different logging things. And that's what Airbnb had for a long time because you have to, because like, otherwise you go nuts. You go insane. They fixed it. It's really, really hard. It takes a long, long time. It's incredibly expensive to do human capital time, all this kind of stuff, but it can be done.
0: Let's refocus this on.
1: Oh God. Do we have to? Okay.
0: (laughs) So from 2015 to you left in, I guess this year, right? Yeah. I left uh, say
1: November 1st was my last day.
0: Over that period of time, was there some particular technical problem that was so hard to solve that it's very memorable or there's a particular lesson you can draw? Like When you think about that question, is there some singular event or architectural feature of Slack that you had to fix that comes to mind?
1: Oh, that I personally had to fix? Yeah. I'm sure there were like dozens of them, to be honest with you. I think the one I am most familiar with was rebuilding Slack search. Like that was really really that was that was the hardest and in many ways like the best thing I've ever done. Mm. Rebuilding Slack search. That was that was really 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 hard and very, I saw very about rewarding. That. Yeah, you saw the talk at Lucidworks or whatever mm-hmm. whatever they activate whatever it's called. Yeah. That was the best working experience of my life. I will never top that. I don't think. Mm. If I had to guess, if I work for another 20 years, I don't think I will ever top that working experience. Yeah.
0: So why isn't that just like like building... I mean, I think we did actually did a show about search at Airbnb, but, you know, Airbnb has tough search problems. Every company has tough search problems. We can take Elasticsearch off the shelf or take Solar off the shelf or... Whatever, call call the Elastic
1: folks. Call LucidWorks. Yeah, that's right.
0: Call the AWS Elastic Search Service team if you're on a budget.
1: That's right. Algolia is good people. I Algolia mean, is like, oh, good people. Lots of good options. Why can't
0: you just do that? Why? Yeah. What's so hard about it?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Most people can do that. You're absolutely right. The vast majority of people can. I want to give some context for this. I made I picked on Mongo a little bit at the at the first part of the talk, and that's that's unfair and cheap. And I'm a bad person, and I apologize for that. I don't apologize for being a bad person, but I apologize for the cheap shot at Mongo. But the thing I really liked about working at Slack, technically speaking, it was a very boring by-the-book company. It was developed by a bunch of ex-Flickr people. When I first got to Slack, it was kind of cool. It was like my second day there. I had kind of engineering 101. This is how Slack works. And you know, by the end of it, I could pretty much just start working. <laughs> like There was... Not much to learn. It was like not much to it. It was really straightforward. You could have picked up an engineer from Flickr in 2005, dropped them at Slack in 2015. They pretty much would have been able to work, right? It was like PHP, Apache, MySQL, very, very boring, no frameworks, no magic. And I would say to Slack's credit, I think in a lot of ways, they were very much focused on like boring. You know, Dan McKinley, McFundley has written about this, like choose boring technology. And it's in my opinion, completely right. <laughs> I think like a lot of my, my nightmares at, at Slack were really imposed, like I did them to myself when I would choose like the bleeding edge version of Spark where like, oh crap, I'm getting an error message and there's no Stack Overflow <laughs> answer. Oh God, oh no, I have to go figure this out myself. What have I done to myself? Like that, that kind of thing. And so by choosing boring technology, you avoid all that. Now, all the answers are known. You can pretty much call anybody, right? And the same choice was made, the same sort of approach was used when Slack was building its search infrastructure. So, it, you know, again, we talked about this a little bit in the in the Activate talk, but Slack search was built in 2014. It was built entirely on solar. That was what the engineer who had worked at Flickr, like, and actually, I think, amazingly, was even in a, a high school band with Stuart at one point. And he knew, he knew how to use solar. And so it was kind of a solar four, because that was what existed at the time. Basically, solar cloud was still like not quite really a thing. Solar four team sharded indexing system. That's what it was. And so when we started, when in, I think in early 2016, when we started building out what was then called SLI, search learning and intelligence, in, in primarily in New York, we started hiring, we hired a lot of like Foursquare people because that was where Noah Weiss, who had headed head of that group, was from. We hired a bunch of Foursquare people, a bunch of Etsy people, a lot of search experience, both Elastic and Solar coming from those places, obviously, that kind of thing. And we set out to start rebuilding Slack search on top of Solar Cloud instead, instead of Solar. We made a bunch of choices. One of the choices we made was to, first of all, we made the choice to stick with Solar Cloud as opposed to solar. And that was a very consequential decision in ways we couldn't quite fully understand. But the idea was that if we just migrated from solar to solar cloud, we didn't have to rewrite any of the query, construction, indexing layers in the application itself. Because like you said, that is all somewhat real time. It's handled by that same job queue infrastructure to do the indexing. And then of course course the querying construction is real time. And so we thought, okay, it'll be easy to migrate from like, you know, Querying the old solar cluster to querying the new solar cloud cluster because we don't have to rewrite anything; we just have to point into the new cluster, and that was like largely true, and that was great. We opted to build the entire sort of like historical index basically offline using like a MapReduce pipeline, and again, a lot of that was just like the availability of resources we had. Like, and we, by the way, you have to build an yeah.
0: index for every single team. Every single Slack team that gets created.
1: Every single team that gets created. I think as of I don't know if this is still true, but again when we were doing it, every message for every team is available in the index with effectively the same like quality of service so that if you decide to pay for Slack and you turn it on, boom, your search is on. You get everything right there, just like that. Magical. That's that was the idea. That was the vision. Slack ingests hundreds of millions of messages per second. The query volume is maybe like one one hundredth of that. Right, broadly speaking. So, unlike say an e-commerce search or like Airbnb or whatever, events index messages are coming in much, 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 much faster than queries are. And this has like this is basically like Elasticsearch style querying and and structure and stuff like that. Right? Slack is also at this point it's a little fuzzy. There are the three largest solar cloud clusters in the world are Apple, Salesforce, Slack, and Reddit are the big four. I'm sure there's like a few others that are like creeping up since then. But at the time, they are basically like in a class by themselves. You do not run Slack's like multi-billion document like message indexing cluster the same way you run like a 50 million, you know, document e-commerce indexing system. It's just a completely different sort of and the funny thing I think And And you're saying yeah. that because
0: the writes are just so much faster in a system like Slack than in an e-commerce store where you know, whatever, some sellers send you their new things to put on the site. It's like, whatever, that's, you know, we could figure out how to do that. You know, you just have such high volume. That's with, right. With the
1: messaging system. With the messaging system. The right volume is just so off the charts. In the same way, like a logging system has effectively off the chart, write volume compared to read volume and stuff like that. And just yeah. for a little bit of context for people
0: who haven't thought about search, every message that comes in, so let's say it's a message that says, hello, I am Josh. Yeah. Anybody who searches for that message needs to, you know, the lookup needs to hit all of those different strings that are in that sentence. And in order to have that kind of lookup system, all of those different tokens or, or words or whatever need to be basically uh, look upable. They need to be keyized and so that the value of that actual message can be looked up on the backend infrastructure. And the process of doing that, breaking up of the, the string and turning it into an indexed entry takes a little work. takes, takes a little, little processing. Work. takes
1: a little work. I think the, the query side is in many ways more interesting to me. If I think of, we think of things that would like be the, like the end of Slack, the death of Slack that we were extra special paranoid about. Slack search is kind of like Texas Hold'em. There are messages that you can see and only you can see. And there are messages that are public that everyone can see to a given team. Right. If we ever, ever return messages to people or files to people that they were not allowed to see, that would be an absolute catastrophe. Whether it was from some other team or from other people on your team, whatever, like that kind of stuff. We're at least, and again in my time, triple levels of redundant checking mm-hmm. <laughs> to verify that you could in fact see the message that you were allowed to see. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that like Slack search can be a little slow, that's the primary reason why. So we are utterly paranoid about the security and making sure that you are only seeing things that you are allowed to see. again, with the weird edge cases and all that kind of stuff, but generally speaking, that's that's sort of like the primary goal. In that sense, it is also a little different than Elasticsearch. It is, it is a like, unique search problem. And I wanna, I wanna tie this back to what I was saying about choosing boring technology. Because when we were building the solar cloud cluster and we were doing all of this stuff, we were really trying to do things by the book. There was a lot of infrastructure information expertise out there about solar cloud. And we were trying to use all of it, especially like the replication logic and stuff like that that I talk about in the, in the Activate talk. And we just couldn't get it to work. We just absolutely could not get sort of classic solar cloud replication in any modality, including, we, I mean, we were eventually like we were running against master. We were forking master and adding in our own patches to fix bugs we were running into. We just simply could not get it to work. We could not get the cluster to be stable at all. Months and months and months of beating our head against this, trying to figure out, are we stupid? Is there a chapter in the book we haven't read? <laughs> what, what is going on here? And finally, finally, through just kind of a fortuitous, you know, just like the, the wonderful thing about living in San Francisco is everyone knows everybody. It's a village, right? We reached out back channel to some friends of ours at Salesforce and Apple. And we're like, basically, like, what? Like, like, what? What are we doing wrong? And bless their hearts. They just leveled with us. And we're like, yeah, that stuff doesn't work at the scale you guys are running. Dozen, oh. It just doesn't work. Oh no. It just absolutely like That's we, not the answer you want to hear. It's not. It's not. They're like, we don't run that way. We can't run that way. It doesn't work for us. And that was an incredible moment because we then I get a team of I guess like five or six of us at that point, right? We're like, okay, we need to invent a replication and redundancy strategy right now, while Slack search is basically burning down all around us. Query latencies are off the charts. It is the single most expensive piece of our infrastructure. We spend more money on it than we do on the MySQL layer, than we do on the application tier.
0: It's what people pay for.
1: It's what people pay for. Absolutely. The whole thing's burning around us, and we need to invent it. And Jeff, we did. We did. We invented it, and it took about a week or so to imp- invent it, and I think maybe a month or so to implement it. And then we got it up and spun up. This is like early January 2018, we're doing this work. And we launched on March 1st, 2018.
0: And there was no one weird trick, it was just a bunch of, you know, grindy grinding to get there or was there a one weird trick
1: basically we turned i think the shorthand way to say it we turned what we thought of as our emergency backup strategy into the the way would be the way i would say the way i would describe it way i would describe it um so we did a couple of things one is we implemented the old hdfs hdfs hoary chestnut right there's three copies of every block the idea of HDFS or S3 or any of these systems, right? Is you want to have reliable sure. data availability in the presence of like unreliable hardware. Sure. So the only way to really do that is to like create multiple copies yeah. of everything, right? That's that's how these systems work. So that's actually what's how Slack search works as well. There isn't one copy of the message index, there's three copies of every message in the index. So we have redundancy like in the kind of HDFS sense. Mm-hmm. That is expensive, but it turns out to be less expensive than running Slack search the old way like to the tune of mm-hmm. millions of dollars. So we create, like, basically if a shard in the Slack Solar Cloud cluster dies, we know what sort of index segments, so they're called segments, like the data files, were on that one, there are other copies of them elsewhere, we spin up a new cluster, we copy over the segments, we kind of like replay things basically to get them caught up to like the latest and greatest. Like if someone adds an emoji reaction that updates the document, if someone deletes a document, that's obviously a thing, all that kind of stuff. We get them caught up. And we reintroduce them to the index, and so there's generally like these little windows of time. Like essentially, at any given time, Slack Search Solar Cloud Cluster has thousands of nodes in it. There's one that's down always, but it doesn't matter because everything is replicated, right? All of the documents are available all the time in this un- like unreliable system. We basically implemented the HDFS trick ourselves on top of Solar Cloud to solve this problem. That would be the way I would describe it. Yeah,
0: and. I'm just having trouble understanding why the that's like a, a reliability or a durability problem. Yeah. I guess I'm having un- trouble understanding what was the bottleneck that that solved.
1: So the way that solar cloud rely, like reliability, durability works would be the way that like sort of classic master... I don't like to say it. Master read replica. So yeah, I don't wanna say that. Master read replica, sort of my like MySQL replication works. That's the way it sort of classically works is Solar Cloud itself will, you write a record to a Solar Cloud node and it will replicate that record for you in the same way that like a MySQL database will replicate a row to a read copy. And if that MySQL node dies or that Solar node dies, no big deal. There's a read replica ready to go to start mm-hmm. serving stuff immediately. Mm-hmm. That's that's the way like a MySQL replica. Solar uses a very similar kind of strategy, like a database replication strategy. So it's basically like the replication is in Solar Cloud. We don't do that. We do the replication ourselves at the application layer. Solar mm-hmm. Cloud is not allowed to do any replication. We mm-hmm. manually again behind and the scenes do it twice. three times replicate. Yeah, every message into the index. Sorry, so
0: Solar replicates once. You replicate it twice. We do. Okay,
1: I mean Solar can replicate it an arbitrary number of times in the same way that MySQL can have an arbitrary number of read replicas. It's the same idea. You but you needed
0: re- to write your own for some reason.
1: We did. Yeah. What was the problem with Solar Clouds? It typically? can't handle the write volume that we're throwing at it. Oh, so what would you have to buffer it or something? Or um, I mean, no, it can handle the write volume fine. You just need to shard it out, kind of like broadly enough.
0: Oh, okay. So you parallelize the indexing.
1: Well, yeah. What I mean, obviously, you'd parallelize the indexing. And what I mean is, is we parallelize the replication. So okay. I, I have, I have like, X nodes necessary to serve my query volume, right? If I'm going to have one replica, I'm going to have 2X those number of nodes. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right? Master serving yeah. queries, replica, yeah. so taking writes, serving queries, replicas on the back end. Yeah. Right? Instead of letting SolarCloud handle that that 2x replication. Yeah. We just take the 2x nodes and just shard things out that much more. If that makes sense. Just like scale things out this way and then we do the replication ourselves at the application layer. Mm. So the application now has to do three writes. And of course there are like transactional sort of problems with that too, right? Mm. What happens if the process dies while it's doing the writes and blah 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 blah. There's all this stuff that can happen. So you create a different set of problems for yourself, but they're like solvable <laughs> tractable problems in a way that like Reinventing Solar Cloud's entire replication strategy from scratch in three weeks was not going to be like tractable. What problem did that solve? Availability of the documents when a, when a node goes down. Okay. So if a node dies, right, I want to make sure that I can still query the documents that are on that node. No, no node, like oh. the part of the index shouldn't like disappear just because some node dies.
0: Okay, so in the Solar version. You would have just been blocking too many times because there would be no, no node that was replicated, or you yeah. literally would have like events where you would lose data and
1: yeah, you definitely don't want to lose. I, I mean, losing data was the primary fear.
0: So you would actually lose data.
1: I mean, no, in the sense that like the message would still be persisted to MySQL and could be recovered later. And mm-hmm. Again, multiple layers of redundancy in every way, but the message would not be queryable. For some period of time, like Mm -hmm. on the order of, it could be days, it could be hours, it could be that kind of stuff. The message Mm -hmm. would be unavailable for query.
0: Mm.
1: You could not find it. Which, again, it's tricky with this stuff, but it's like, if businesses, if it's like, I need to find a receipt, I need to find an invoice, it's a big deal. (laughs) I need to be able to find it right now. Yeah, anyway. So that's a problem that
0: Apple or Salesforce would have encountered if they had the right frequency. And and they do. Slack.
1: They do. I would say it's not even close. Apple and Salesforce are like orders of magnitude larger than Slack. Like Apple is like all of Apple mail is backed by SolarCloud. Salesforce, like effectively Salesforce is essentially like a, I'm, I don't want to offend anybody. Salesforce is in my understanding a thin veneer in front of like a custom solar instance. Like search is like it's a massive interface for, for Salesforce. A lot of discovery navigation happens via search and like Every object in Salesforce is available for Query and Solar and kind of has to be. They are by far the heavy-duty, yeah, absolutely, Solar Solar users.
0: And so why wasn't that bottleneck an issue for them?
1: It was.
0: Oh. Yeah. Oh, so when you, when you went to them and said, hey, this doesn't work, they literally said, yeah, we have noticed yeah, we, that we and know. we are suffering from
1: it. I would say we've worked around it, I think would be what they would say. Mm. We, have, we have found ways to yeah deal with that constraint in ways that were appropriate for our individual use case and our needs okay. and we re- and we recommend that you slack also find a way to work around it that is appropriate for your use case needs like but basically just if anything they they were kind enough to tell us to like stop banging our heads against the wall, which right. in a lot of ways is, is the i mean it's kind of like it's the uh just knowing that a problem is solvable is in a lot of ways all you need to solve it, yeah right.
0: Well, and also that there's no easy solution. Yeah, that's right. There's no off the shelf thing. There's no off the shelf thing. You're going to have to work through it yourself.
1: Exactly. It was, you know, I feel like at some companies, there's a strong tendency to like never run into this problem because there's like they love reinventing the wheel or they're Google and they love vulcanizing their own rubber, like, like all that kind of stuff, right? Don't just reinvent the wheel. We vulcanize our own rubber. That is the Google motto. Companies love this. A lot of engineers love it. I get it. It's super fun. At Slack, that was very much not our mentality. And it was so much not our mentality that it took us a really long time and, in fact, needed like a swift kick in the head basically to say, hey, Slack, you need to reinvent the wheel. You need to invent your own wheel. There is no, there isn't a wheel you can go buy. You have to go create it. And so you said that
0: this actually impacted the client logic?
1: It didn't impact the client logic. It did not impact the, the client The virtue logic. of the system, like, by and large, was that, like, we abstracted that stuff away through a proxy layer so that, like, the client didn't have to care. Okay, that's great.
0: Did you have caching layers you had to create on top of that search system, or was, it, was there a, a best practice for dealing with the caching stuff? To be honest
1: with you, no. Um, Slack search doesn't cache. I guess would be like the TLDR. Slack search okay. doesn't cache. Beyond like the very minimal sort of like, you know, like the OS doing SSD level caching for segments that get hit very often. Uh-huh. There are teams that search a lot more than others. And like you can use just kind of, again, you can use off the shelf like Solar Cloud caching. We can use our off the shelf kind of like message caching infrastructure for like pulling fully kind of hydrated messages mm-hmm. from MySQL and sticking them in a cache. Like all that stuff was not, but there, there's, we, we experimented with a number of different kind of caching approaches. And generally speaking, beyond the fact that knowing that some teams query a lot more than others. So basically the the TLDR of this was that the thing we got from building the the index offline via MapReduce was fundamentally the ability to restructure the index so that things would cache better. Putting all of the documents from the same team together in this sort of historical index was the single biggest performance improvement we got, like just by a wide margin. Because again, when we're doing writes, the messages are coming in from every team they're coming in so fast you just stick them wherever you can as fast as you can but when you're doing the historical index um, you actually have the opportunity to restructure things to make the reads vastly more efficient and vastly more cache friendly and so that was that was a massive that was like to the tune of like 300 400 milliseconds off of p95 that was a really big win yeah but no no additional custom caching it was just being smart about how you structure the index yeah
0: Taking into context your experience at Google and also at Cloudera, you were at both yeah. those companies for four years, respectively. Yeah. Uh, you've been at other companies. And then your four years at Slack, what is distinctive about the Slack culture, both from a product perspective, from a
1: long-term perspective,
0: and from an engineering perspective? What makes the company distinct culture-wise?
1: Slack is by far the most product-oriented company I have ever worked at. I've generally worked at engineering-driven, engineering-led companies. Uh, Google uh, is engineering-driven to a fault. Cloudera, I don't know, I don't actually know what Cloudera is anymore, but when Cloudera was there, Cloudera was very engineering-driven, very much so. Slack is not, Slack is product-driven in a way that was, let's go with jarring for me. It was very, I was very surprised. It was very different than like the way I worked and stuff like that.
0: Product driven means like top down. We're going to design a product, then we're going to engineer around that.
1: Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Yeah, in the way that like Apple is product driven, in the way that like lots of very successful companies are product driven. But again, coming from like my limited experience and limited perspective, I assume that all successful companies were fundamentally engineering driven companies, and that's not Slack. It's just not. It's just not who they are. And it was. Painful, but again, educational, I think, to work in a product-driven environment where just really like design and product are really first-class citizens and not, again, I can't speak for Google now, but not kind of like afterthoughts in the way that I felt like they were in a lot of ways at Google. Not afterthoughts, not the right way, but like fundamentally it was an engineering yeah
0: well, they have so much money they're they're now a product company and an engineering
1: company yeah, I mean absolutely and a design company, and they they can absolutely throw enough money at any problem they want to be anything they want. No question about it. whatever version of a company you like working at, <laughs> Google's got something for you, I would say broadly speaking, and Slack is not that Slack's a product driven company. Slack was by far the nicest company I have ever worked at. Mm. People were genuinely kind. I was by far, i think. Outside of a few people I know who got fired for bad behavior, I was the worst person at Slack. Like, really, I was the least, biggest, least kind person at Slack. And I generally think of myself as a kind person, which I think reflects some amount of, like, obviously self-delusion and also the fact that I'm probably, like, not that bad of a person in the grand scheme of things. But I was by far the worst person at Slack. Everyone there is very, very kind, very, very nice. And a kind culture, the
0: nine to five culture.
1: The nine and like the nine to five culture is a real thing. I love that. I, I did too. I did too. I have a four-year-old. He was born a month before I started working at Slack, which again, for you listeners, starting a job, a new job, like one month after you have a child is a terrible idea. And you should absolutely not do that. But yes, a nine to five. I got to put my son to bed every night, I got to make him breakfast every morning i walk them to preschool, all that kind of stuff. It's great. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I love that.
0: Um, Let's take a step back and think about things in terms of the, quote, broader industry. Okay. You alluded to this earlier that we have, in 2019, this robust buffet of different technologies we can work with, whether they're coming from cloud providers or companies that are very narrowly focused on some problem domain, like 5Tran or Snowflake or Databricks or whatever. And it's a great time to be building a company because really, if you are a, quote, product person, if you have an idea for a product and you know something about software engineering, you can build it. Yeah. It's just not that hard, and it's only getting easier. What are the shortcomings of modern data warehousing tools and data infrastructure tools?
1: Mm. That is a great, great question. What are the shortcomings of them? So I think I had an answer for a long time. This is based on my experience at Slack. The greatest source of irritation for us was having to use Hive or Spark, Spark SQL, whatever, right? For ETL or heavy duty, kind of intensive machine learning and Presto for interactive query that Hive and Spark, we just were not really great, as good as Presto was at interactive. And Presto really wasn't as good at ETL sort of stuff as Hive was. And the fact that the query languages across the three are not close, but they're not exactly compatible with one another, was like the single greatest source of frustration, that there was not one system that could handle all of our ETL-ish SQL and all of our interactive SQL on top of what was, to be fair, essentially an infinitely scalable data lake-ish thing built on S3 with one centralized hive metastore. I think Snowflake has done a phenomenally good job of largely solving this problem. I've been tremendously impressed with what Snowflake has built. So that to be able to handle both of these things, I don't actually know how they do it. I kind of am tempted to go work there just so I could like find out, or maybe I could just swing by and they would just, you know, maybe they would, I could just ask them and they would tell me.
0: We did an episode
1: on I, episode. I, I would have to listen to the episode. Yeah. And that'd be fantastic. Yeah, that's interesting. It can do both yeah. in one query language. Yeah. And that is, that is an amazing superpower right. that, that just removes so much friction makes it so much easier to move back and forth from exploration right, 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 right. to productionalization, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's huge. That is, that is absolutely phenomenal. So yeah, I'm a big fan of that. And that's, uh, that's like phenomenally exciting to me. I have to give a kind of a long pontificating answer to this question. And even I find it a little, a little, a little little tedious. So I just edit out as much of it as you can. Analytics value chain. Okay. There's ingest. I need to get data into my analytical system. I need to store it. I need to do computation on it. And I need to visualize process the results in some way. And there are companies that exist at like every sort of layer of this stack, right? There's like, on the ingest side, you can get stream sets. Confluent does a lot of this stuff. There's a lot of companies, like classic Informatica, like classic kind of ETL, you know, like loading, the loading aspect of getting data around, right? For storage, S3, obviously there's a lot to recommend it. You know, at Redshift, if you're so inclined, blah, blah, blah. blah. I mean, stuff like I basically think of as S3-based storage, more or less. For Compute, Spark. Snowflake, Presto, Hive, a bunch of other stuff I can't even think of, like all that kind of stuff. And then on the sort of visualization, like do stuff with it. I mean, everything, everything, Tableau, Mode, Periscope, like what do, I don't even know all the full set of the Jupyter notebooks, right? It's like, and then you have like solution providers that kind of provide any level of abstraction over this value chain you want. So you can buy like Sciense and they'll just do everything. You can do BigQuery and they'll do storage and compute but not visualization, right? Like whatever sort of subset of this you wanna have, you can have, and that's amazing. That's also like deeply confusing and scary. I think it's like overwhelming, broadly speaking. For a long time, and I would still say to a large extent, the vast, like, so Clay Christensen, so, you know, I wear a hoodie and I I dress like this, but I'm basically like an MBA student in disguise. You know Clayton Christensen wrote the Innovators Dilemma, like Innovator's Solution, all that kind of stuff. And he has this great thing. I'm also a big stratechery guy, like Ben Thompson. I was just
0: thinking, you look a little bit like Ben. Thompson.
1: Do I look up? That's like maybe not in a bad way. And say my wife is from Taiwan too, so I, I should maybe Ugh. I should go like move over there and hang out with him. Like I honestly I, like we visit relatives there sometime, and I'm like always kind of like vaguely tempted to see like send him an email and see if, see if you'd see if you'd see if you'd want to hang out with me. Yeah. And maybe like you know get away from me, you stupid dirty software engineer. But anyway, so yeah. The law of conservation of attractive profits, modularization and integration across the value chain, like that kind of stuff. I am, as you would imagine, after like hearing me pontificate about the history of logging at Google, I am a student of history and a lot of different things. In the analytics value chain, for a really, really long time, all of the money was really at that storage compute interface. And what I mean by that is like Teradata, like going back to the 90s when Teradata was dominant and it was all about like Teradata, Teradata built the very best system and they built the very best system because they integrated the ever living out of storage and compute. They wrote custom disk drivers, right? They used custom hardware. Natiza operated in the same model. Tight, tight integration between storage of data and query over data to get the absolute best performance you could over large volumes of data. That's amazing. Obviously I worked at Cloudera. So Cloudera involved like kind of the commoditization of this stuff in a certain ways. And like Teradata was my great enemy for like four years. So I guess Hortonworks was also hideously my great enemy for a number of years. But leaving that aside, kind of breaking down this like very tight storage compute integration to a Hadoop world where yes, there was storage compute integration but it was loosely coupled and you could do sort of more, you had more flexibility and more control over it and all that kind of stuff. When I got to Slack, we had bought in pretty hard to the Netflix style system where like S3, is the source of truth because of course the problem with Hadoop and Teradata and Netesa and all these systems is they're great, including actually Redshift, now that I think about it, they're great until you exceed the storage capacity of the system and you have to upgrade to the next biggest Netesa instance or the next biggest Teradata instance. Redshift is great when you have a petabyte of data and an absolute nightmare when you have two petabytes of data. Like it just falls off a cliff and you can ask anybody. That's why they have Redshift Spectrum now to like help alleviate this problem. Anyway. So we built everything on S3, and when you're building on S like S3, obviously, although I think they've started adding like effectively query capability to S3 over time, S3 is really just storage. It's dumb storage. It's storage dis like disaggregated, modularized, if you will, across the query interface. So that was why at Slack we could use Hive and we could use Spark and we could use Presto, and everyone could write data at S3 and everyone else could query it, and that was like super cool. We had modularity and flexibility across these interfaces. And I kind of thought that was like the future. But then Snowflake came along, and I think the thing Snowflake did really well is they built a compute engine that is optimized and born and designed for S3 in a way that Spark and Presto and Hive are not. They've made adaptations to deal with S3 and object storage, but fundamentally they were born of HDFS. And they, were, they all were. And they're still largely run in, in Facebook and, and so on and so forth on top of HDFS, or again, you know, derivations of HDFS. Snowflake built a system that was born in the cloud, or at least like really close to it, and showed that if you do that, you can save just a tremendous amount of money, like an enormous quantity of EC2 costs, because you can scale this thing up and down incredibly flexibly. A few folks tried to do this. all tried to do this. A lot of people tried to do this. Snowflake just did it better. They, I say that like success in my experience comes to people who get there first with the right solution. They got there first with the right solution. That's a lot of people can get there first, but like not get it right. A lot of people can get the right solution much later in life as, as Google has sadly learned a few times now. You get there first with the right solution and you win. And that I think is like the most compelling aspect of Snowflake for me, like solving that problem. I wonder how long this goes on though, I guess. I feel like there's sort of still and maybe this is just wishful thinking on my part, I feel like there's still sort of an inexorable force that is pushing like towards modularization of storage and compute, where these two things do not actually have to be super tightly integrated together. And part of this is like the pain and suffering that I have gone through dealing with like Salesforce integrations or getting data out of whatever, whatever vendors that my marketing team decided to use and into the data warehouse and stuff like that. It was still a lot of tedium and work that was kind of like unnecessary in order to bring it into kind of like either the you know Parquet, Hadoop Hive ecosystem we created or into like the Snowflake ecosystem. It's still like that ingest piece is still a lot of work. And when you have things like MuleSoft which come along and say, hey, let's just use APIs for data integration. like. Computers are good. We don't actually need that much data from Salesforce most of the time. We don't need to pull over every everything. We can just pull over the little bit we need and use it as we need it, right? Which again is back to the idea of decoupling storage and compute. That like the storage can be in Salesforce and it can be in Marketo and it can be in S3 and it can be in wherever. And we can throw a query interface on top of it that can talk to all of those different things. That for me is like the most interesting kind of question for the next like five years. Like what happens to that storage compute interface? Because honestly, that's where all the money is. And so if you want like, you know, Tableau got acquired for whatever, Looker got acquired for whatever, that's fantastic, that's great. I have no doubt StreamSets will do really well, but fundamentally the money in this business is at that storage compute interface. And whoever like wins there, wins like the future of how we do things. So if it's storage and compute super tightly coupled together, gotta bet on snowflake if it's this sort of disaggregated decoupled system where like anything can talk to anything else then i think you could think presto starburst spark and databricks so on right. and so forth a lot of, and maybe other people who haven't, haven't even been born yet and will create a solution that is born for that world right could potentially win
0: right yeah that's
1: what's interesting to me it's yeah just, I, sound so, like a, I sound like a venture capitalist don't i eh,
0: a little bit Ouch. um but this is the heart of what i mean we've done a lot of shows about quote unquote a data platform yeah and that's kind of what it is and for a lot of people the more the more people i talk to the pivotal decision does seem to be are you snowflake or are you spark kind of, yeah disaggregated yeah
1: that's right Federation, I, to me, it's like federated independent storage and compute yeah. versus tightly coupled, tightly integrated. That is the choice. And the fact that you get even get a choice is kind of exciting. Definitely. It makes a very, very interesting time.
0: Okay. Well, a lot of stuff we didn't get to, but we um, <laughs> can begin to wind down. Sure, man. So, you know, early days of Facebook or early days of Google…
1: I wasn't there, just to be clear. I know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a historian. I'm not a— <laughs> I know you aren't there. I didn't live it.
0: But Early days of Facebook or Google, nobody would have anticipated what these behemoths became. No. I mean, there was something in probably a kernel of what it what they eventually became in the vision that the founders laid out or whatever. I
1: don't think that's true.
0: Probably not. Probably not. Probably not. Probably not. No, it's no. more way. like— Absolutely not. They eventually got infinite money, and they were capable of dreaming up something to do with that infinite money. They were. Okay, let's say Slack gets infinite money. What okay. does Slack
1: become? Oh, interesting. What does what Slack... is the
0: what's the ten year, twenty year thing that it morphs into?
1: So I think that's not quite right, I guess. And what I want to clarify is like. Like you don't decide what to become when you get infinite. I guess like I don't know. I'm sure you do have to decide what to become when you get infinite. And the more
0: cl- the more clear question I'm looking for is how what does, Slack- does Slack? What does Slack look like in ten years? What's the, what's the vision
1: for the company? Oh, so I have no idea. broadly speaking, I mean, at a product driven company, I don't think you can ask an engineer like what the vision is and, and get like probably like the best right answer. Not because it hasn't been explained to me many times, but because I am just like fairly dense and just don't like totally get. I can tell you what vision I had for Slack, but it's very much like an engineer-driven vision. I don't think it's like the vision, vision. I would say so. I don't think I speak authoritatively, especially since again, I don't work there anymore.
0: <laughs> right, I don't. Sure
1: I, don't I don't. You know. I don't. I don't own any Slack stock. I don't have any. I don't have any stake in the company's future. Okay. All right. All
0: right. Different question.
1: If you like, Do you tell, get just tell, me, tell
0: me what you think the CEO wants the company to become long term. Man, I really I, oh, again. No I don't. Right, I,
1: right. Again, I can tell you what I think the company should become, but okay, I sure,
0: sure. Tell me that. Very condensed.
1: Slack is a remarkably successful company. It's an incredibly successful company. Even right now at ten billion or whatever it's worth, that is outrageous. But if Slack in five or ten years is only a ten billion dollar company. It will be like one of the saddest, most disappointing episodes of of my life. Like, right? If it's a $20 billion, if it's anything less than a hundred plus billion dollar company, if it's not one of those companies, it is an absolute disappointment. Yeah. At least for me. At least for me. In spite of all of its success, in spite of everything. How does it become that? It would need to do two things, I think. One of them is sort of predicated on the other, but doing either one of them would be sort of sufficient, I think, for being like one of the most valuable companies in the world. One is that Slack certainly has the potential to become the modern, I don't know if you call it the ERP system, but like the modern sort of fundamental integration point of all business processes. That every single system, in the way that like, if you ask Confluent, what is our vision for Kafka, right? Kafka is at the center of all things. Kafka is like every sort of data process of the system flows through Kafka in some way. And I think for technical events, I think that could very much be true. And you can build the, I don't, it would be, I think they would beat the crap out of me if they heard me call it an enterprise data bus, but whatever that sort of the circulatory system, whatever you want to call it, like the nervous system, blah, 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 blah. Slack could become the human version of that. The Kafka thing is great, but it's not really for humans. It's for computers. Slack could become that sort of central nervous system hub that like all consequential events in a company flow through like in a way that like if you run your company on sap and you're doing on your manufacturing widgets or whatever fundamentally like your company runs on sap in that kind of way like everything runs through sap sap systems or the oracle systems or whatever whatever right in the like cloud world we live in now where you have all these different vendors and all these different systems and all these different people Slack is a thing you could plug everything into. That is what it is designed to be. You could pipe every single event, and this is like, largely speaking how Slack itself runs, right? Slack runs on Slack. Slack pipes everything into Slack. Slack does everything on Slack, almost to a fault, even when the product isn't quite ready for some of the things that Slack wants to do, but that's how they find out, right? Being that hub is an incredibly valuable place to be because it would enable, I think, you to build and I just kinda wanna punch myself as I say this, like it would enable you to build like the AI sort of machine learning driven systems that would help people run their businesses better. And you could be like really like the global brains of the operation in some non-trivial sense. And if you expand that vision from a single company to in a way that I think Slack is doing right now with their like efforts around shared channels, to build this web of companies. Because no company is an island, right? You have right. suppliers, you have customers, you have Michael Porter's five forces every which way, right? Doing my doing my MBA thing again. If you can tie all of those companies together into one sort of global network, if you basically build the equivalent of like Facebook, but for businesses, where everyone is connected to everyone else, anyone is reachable through anyone else via like the network of shared channels, any business process can reach any other business process anywhere. Right. You are the most valuable company in the world, without a question. I don't think it's close. I I mean, I'll be honest with you. You're more valuable than Google and Facebook together. Like that's, that's the goal. That's what, and if it's not, it really should be.
0: Well, I remember, I saw some tweet or post or something about the shared channels and how difficult that was to implement. It's incredibly difficult
1: to implement. Yes, absolutely. Very, very hard to do.
0: Final question. As you mentioned, you have done these separate four- year stents, you've done some other stuff. I have you, you That's pretty it. much
1: it. I guess I did do some other stuff once. You, just who can remember yeah
0: so you, so you and you said you've been in the working world for like 20 years yeah basically. about twenty almost twenty years Any distinctive perspective on how the nature of work is changing this idea where most of us are going to offices mm-hmm. The way that companies are built. I mean, obviously we can, we can have the typical conversations about, oh, yeah. going towards remote work, remote work or whatever. But but yeah, exactly. Any just subtle or distinctive thoughts that I might not hear from someone else?
1: I don't really have any. I mean, it's just not something I give a lot of thought to. Okay. Just to be honest with you. Yeah. Okay. I do not feel like I have anything meaningful to add.
0: All right. Well. Yeah, sorry. That's fine.
1: Yeah. Closing I feel, thoughts? I feel, I feel like in many ways, you know, me saying No. I don't have anything meaningful to add. Is a pretty good metaphor for this entire talk. So I, I I would probably just leave it, leave it at that. Yeah,
0: fair enough. enough. (laughs) Josh Wills, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really fun. Thanks so much for
1: having me. Good stuff, man. Thanks a lot.
0: Yeah, great conversation.